This week's TribCast is sponsored by UT Arlington's commitment to excellence keeps Texas strong with highly skilled graduates for the Texas workforce and life-changing research. Find out more at uta.edu. And water grows. There's a tremendous gap in understanding where and how food is produced and today's consumers. Water Grows aims to connect influencers and decision makers with the farmers that grow their food and help rural economies thrive. For more information, visit watergrows.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for February 17th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. This week I am joined by two pol- politics reporters, Patrick Spitek. Hey, Patrick. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. And James Bettergon. Hey, James. Hello. All right. So today we're going to check in on the legislative session. We had one of the early milestones of that session happen last night when Governor Greg Abbott gave his state of the state speech from a uh, private company's kind of factory locations in San Marcos. No one on this call was in the room because the press was not allowed to attend aside from the TV station broadcasting. But we all watched it and we all have thoughts and comments. And we're going to talk about that today and see how that fits into kind of where this legislative session is going. Patrick, you kind of were the the, the lead writer on that story today and, and watched the whole speech. Give us just a rundown quickly of, of what the high points were there. Right. We, we heard him, um, you know, issue priorities that are pretty consistent with what he's been talking about for the past several months now. So, you know, he talked about wanting to deliver the largest property tax cut in Texas history, which is something he campaigned on last year in his reelection campaign. Um, you know, he's talked about wanting to uh, get uh, education back to basics, as he says, um, you know, and get rid of what he calls woke agendas in the classroom. We heard him campaign on that last year. Um you know, one thing that I think stood out to me maybe a little more and was maybe a little less expected um, was he said he wants to, <clears throat> his number two emergency item was ending COVID restrictions, quote, forever, uh, which is basically passing legislation to codify executive action that he's taken over the past few years to prevent local mandates related to the pandemic, whether it comes to mask wearing or taking vaccines um, or shutting down businesses. Um, we, we, we've known that that's something that, um, you know, he's been interested in having the legislature do. He just hasn't really talked about it that much publicly um, compared to some of these other topics. And so that was one that maybe rose above the rest um, for me in terms of being a little less expected in the speech. Yeah, you know, he's been taking some heat from the kind of most conservative, most far on the right people in this party about continuing to have that, um, you know, COVID emergency order, even as places like California and elsewhere, I saw um, uh, someone tweeting about how San Francisco is getting rid of their uh, COVID emergency by the end of the um, end of the month. But that would, I guess, be a way, you know, one of the things he has said, right, is that in order to get rid of that emergency order, he would need some things codified to prevent you know, most of what that order is being used by the state now is is to prevent local officials from implementing uh, uh, guidelines as well. James, what's it up to you? Uh, for me, um, 
Not a whole lot, actually. I mean, uh, Patrick, you know, it, it was pretty uh, pretty much what I think we expected for the most part. I didn't see anything that really, really stood out for, uh, for me. Um, the one thing that, you know, is along the lines of something that I've been covering, which is border security and immigration, was the fentanyl things um, that stood out. You know, he said he wants to end uh, the fentanyl crisis, I believe is how he framed it, right, Patrick? And um, to do that, he's got things like, um, you know, increasing the supply of Narcan, um, which is pretty vague, not a lot of details. Um, and then a specific thing to um, increase the penalties for people who supply fentanyl, um, which is a, a very specific thing, uh, but that, you know, perhaps advocates and activists who are experts in this say is not the actual best approach to this. But nothing super surprising, just the, the fentanyl thing is obviously interesting. Yeah, I did just to put a, an emphasis on how unsurprising the speech was. You know, I don't think um, there's a topic he mentioned last night where there aren't, um, you know, where there isn't at least one piece of legislation already filed, if not multiple pieces of legislation. I mean, lawmakers have been anticipating these proposals and priorities uh, from the governor for a very long time. And it's all stuff that he's hinted at before, right, Patrick? I mean, we were we were kind of looking over the speech and saying, is this new? I don't think so. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was very hard to find something in that speech uh, that it was the first time that he, you know, came out in support of it um, or something like that. I mean, he may have been a little more detailed on some topics in that speech than previously, uh, but the topics themselves weren't a major news. Yeah, I, I might be jumping the gun here, Matthew, but also like the one thing I guess that surprised me was, you know, we're always kind of on the lookout. Uh, is like, is he going to position himself as a GOP potential in 2024? Mm -hmm. You know, that speech certainly didn't sound like it. I mean, this, yeah. this speech, go ahead, Watkins, well, I'm sorry. I was just going to sort of jump on that because what it felt like to me was there were obviously some of the, you know, what we, for lack of a better term, will sometimes call the culture war issues, right? Like the ending wokeness. I mean, there was, you know, he the, he said the word woke probably a half dozen times during the speech. and But like, it didn't really stand out to me as a like kind of conservative fire and brimstone speech, even when he talked about some of those issues that the 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 hard right are, are fired up on he didn't really go into that much detail he didn't you know really go into a certain a certain level of alarmist it did not seem to me like a speech that was designed to gain a lot of attention you know i mean i was gonna say i mean politically i thought this speech was very much kind of Greg Abbott's comfort zone. And I think, I don't want to crib that phrase. I think Grover Jeffers of the Dallas Morning News wrote a column this morning using that phrase comfort zone. And I just agree wholeheartedly with it. I mean, Abbott is, you know, definitely at his most comfortable when he's getting to talk about economic development in Texas, you know, keeping Texans safe, um, you know, making things in Texas that are already great, even greater. And that was a lot of what we, we heard last night. And there weren't a lot of proposals there that, were at least presented um, in a firebrand way. Now, some of these education, you know, ideas that he has this session uh, certainly are going to be uh, divisive um, and politically contentious. Uh, but he's managed to package them as part of this broader frame of education freedom and make them seem kind of, you know, less <laughs> less controversial than they really are. But I'm sure once we get individual pieces of legislation things moving through committees and on the floor, you're going to see how this agenda very quickly can devolve into um, a more polarizing debate. 
Yeah, and he, um, you know, I read that Gromer Jeffers column too. So shout out to the Dallas Morning News and great analysis by Gromer. Uh, he he had the main takeaway was basically like, you know, it seems more like Abbott is setting himself up for a record fourth term as governor, more so than uh, presidential in 2024. That doesn't mean he can't change his tone after the, you know, after the legislative session, which I think is what his uh, aides have been hinting at. Um, but it's certainly, you know, I, I tend to agree with Gromer's take there. Um, and then also uh, just to note that, like, while it wasn't sort of the sort of fire breathing that uh, maybe uh, you get in other parts of the uh, of the state um, politics realm, you know, he's still speaking the language. He's still talking about school choice. He's still talking, uh, complaining about the woke agenda. Um, he's saying the things that he needs to say. Um, to sort of hint to people like we're going to get something done. Um, and there was enough vagueness in some of those uh, that, you know, at the end of the day, he could still come back and and uh, and claim a victory. With school choice is an interesting one because everybody's, you know, that means, you know, different things to different people. He kind of laid out his flag saying like the educational savings accounts, um, sort of that's what he wants to see. But um, it'll it'll just be interesting to see like how that actually plays out because we've seen what kind of support uh, Dan Patrick was, which, which wants, which is something that's more like a school voucher program. And then we're seeing some rumblings in the house that, you know, it's not dead. We want it, we can do something on it, but it's going to depend on what it looks like. James, you you kept an eye on the the Democratic uh, responses uh, to this afterwards. What are, what oh, are we boy. hearing from the Democrats? <laughs> I did keep an eye on the Democrats' response. It was for those who didn't see it, uh, it was a ten minute sort of hodgepodge, uh, you know, kind of lo-fi quality production that ran immediately after the um, the state of state speech. Um, and it included comments from, you know, multiple state lawmakers, but also federal lawmakers, which was a little bit confusing since this is a state of the state speech, not really a federal thing, but that's neither here nor there. There was also comments from, you know, individual Texans who said they've been negatively affected by the policies that Abbott has put into place. Uh, one powerful part of that uh, production was, you know, the um, comments from families of the victims of the Uvalde shooting talking about how they've sort of pleaded with Abbott to, um, you know, raise the age for um, owning an assault rifle or buying an assault rifle from 18 to 21 and that he has sort of ignored their pleas. Um, but, you know, I think the message was diluted by having so many messengers and so many things to hit on. It was just like a, a lot to sort of, you know, I was just sort of trying to catch that for Patrick who <laughs> wrote the main story and it was it was so hard to sort of grasp like okay what are what are the points that they want to make here um so it was I would say it was a little bit convoluted but overall the main points were like things like you know gun gun control gun restrictions gun safety whatever you want to call it um you know uh, the abortion ban has been bad for uh for women's health care here in Texas. Um, they talked about the failures of the electric grid. Uh, and then a little bit on defense, too, they talked about, you know, Democrats love oil and energy and they get us, which was interesting. I think they, um, you know, they also showed, you know, federal lawmakers like Henry Cuellar and Vicente Gonzalez, who have made that point. They also talked about public education, pushing back on school choice, school vouchers um, and the public uh, the public school teacher shortage that has really affected schools after 
COVID-19. But you can tell as I'm saying this in the segment, like it's, it runs long, like, and it's kind of confusing. So like for, I don't, for a viewer, I would think that it was a little bit uh, hard to sort of digest. It, it, it really was something. I, I tend to think less is more for these counter responses to speeches, yes. especially for for Texas Democrats who one of their big problems is at least the perception of a shallow bench. And so, you know, this is a missed opportunity in that it could have been a, a you know real opportunity to elevate a single um, yes. up and coming leader within the party, which they do have. I mean, they do have them in the legislature. They do have them uh, at the municipal uh, and, and uh, county level um, in some of the bigger uh, metropolitan areas. And so, I, you know, it, even if you just look at the legislature, the new Democratic uh, House Democratic Caucus chairman, Trey Martinez Fisher, isn't necessarily an up and comer, but he's certainly proven himself to be a capable communicator and, and pretty telegenic. So I thought it was a missed opportunity to to elevate a new or you know emerging leader at a time when people are really asking like who who is next up to run statewide. Yeah, and the thing is too like if they wanted to go after a specific issue, uh, like they had people like if if Uvalde, which was their lead issue, if they want to do something around that, like why not get you know Tracy King who's going to file that bill in the House or Roland Gutierrez in the Senate who's certainly made it um, his main mission this session. Um, you know, Tracy King, I guess he's not really that kind of person, maybe. <laughs> uh, but Roland Gutierrez, I'm sure, would have been happy to take that whole thing for himself. That that's the other problem, you know, with with the Democrats too. They just like they can't really make up their minds as to who is the person who's going to give the response. Uh, you know, could have been a great opportunity for, uh, you know, a weird choice again, but like Lena Hidalgo, again, who some people see as a potential like gubernatorial candidate or Trey Martinez Fisher, who is the actual leader of the House Democratic Caucus or maybe the Senate Democratic Caucus, like somebody to be like, OK, here is a clear, concise response. And instead, we got this sort of hodgepodge um, message, which was was hard to digest. James said this was the second time in a row that Abbott has given his state of the state speech um, outside of the Capitol. You know, this used to be something that would happen often during the day to, to both chambers inside the Capitol with, you know, a big room. This one, a much more kind of like televised produced, you know, there were even kind of graphics next to him as he spoke um, laying this out. What did you make about the decision to do this off-site and, you know, maybe most importantly to us, um, without, you know, journalists in the room. Yeah, so this is insider baseball stuff. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I mean, the decision to move it outside of the Capitol, I, I don't think is like, you, you, I mean, like, fine, they can do it, you know, and he's done it before. I think last time they held it in Lockhart, right, Patrick? Um, yeah. So, so they've done it before. I think what is troubling is like the lack of press access, and I know that they've that they're carrying it through Nexstar, which telecasts to the entire state, and they're I think fourteen TV stations across the state, plus to anybody else who wants to pick it up. Um, but you know, it's just it's just the you know the thought. I think that we as a country have really uh, been founded and have this idea of like an open press and having the press there. Um, and it's it's just a, that that part I think is a little bit disappointing. Um, I think the House Democrats also alluded to the fact that initially they had asked for NDAs and they were maybe pulling cell phones and stuff, and people didn't like that part of it. So um, yeah, that's troubling. But you know, at the end of the day, 
he gives the speech. We don't really get to ask him questions after it. So it's it's not a whole lot of, you know, it's not a whole lot that you lose. I mean, it was the same thing at the, you know, at the debates, which that should be very different because that is not a state affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that one should be different. But, you know, we're kind of used to this stuff. What I thought was a little bit, you know, it blurred the lines was sort of the production of it in terms of like the, the television station is then running B-roll and I'm not sure, you know, I haven't asked questions about who's in charge of what, but like the the, the B-roll running with it. And then there's there, there was also interactive graphics that came along with it, which, of course, the governor can bring his own like little, you know, glass mirror stuff that does the graphics. But I'm, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. I did think that was a little troubling and sort of blurred the line between, you know, what the news outlet is supposed to do or the broadcaster that's carrying the broadcast is supposed to do and what the actual politician telling or doing the address is supposed to do so that that was a little bit concerning so it was weird in in those ways i would i would say i just echo james that you know it is true that it's it's not like you know having the media there in person has ever had any serious benefit to it it's not like you know when abbott addressed the legislature a joint session of legislature he would give the speech and then go next door to a room and take a dozen questions from the reporters <laughs> right like that wasn't happening but you know we have seen you know over the years in Texas politics, how this access gets chipped away at. And, you know, it, it, you know, if reporters, you know, don't speak up or at least note it, you know, or try to push back, you know, these elected officials keep taking away more and more access and trying to establish kind of what the new normal for access is. And you've seen that in the, in the Texas Senate where access was curtailed in the name of the COVID pandemic during the 2021 session. And now the Senate is keeping that as kind of the new normal for access in the Senate. And so, you know, I don't want to, just like James said, you know, we shouldn't overstate whether there's, you know, any, has been any real practical benefit to having reporters there in person. But I do see it as part of this gradual chipping away at access, um, you know, that, that can lead to a more concerning situation. All right, let's pause and hear a message from our sponsors. Children at risk. Every family deserves affordable, high-quality child care. Join Children at Risk for the Early Childhood Advocacy Day at the Capitol, March 21st at 10 a.m. For more info, visit childrenatrisk.org. And Texas Conference for Women. Don't miss the latest episode of Women Amplified, featuring award-winning author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Target EVP and Chief External Engagement Officer Laisha Ward. For more info, visit conferenceforwomen.org. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about the emergency items that that Governor Abbott laid out. We've gone through a few before, um, but first of all, Patrick, just quickly give me a brief explanation of what an emergency item is and why it matters. So, an emergency item is something that allows lawmakers to bypass a ban on passing legislation off the floor within the first 60 days of the session. So if Abbott designates something an emergency item, that means lawmakers can get to work on trying to pass it off the floor immediately. They don't have to wait until six, you know, the, the 61st day of the session. Now, practically, you know, we're already on the 30-something day mm-hmm. of the session. And so sometimes the emergency items are just more about the symbolism versus the practicality of passing them. It's about the symbolism of the governor designating this issue as one of his highest priorities. Yep. Yep. All right. And so the the list of seven that we have here is cutting property taxes, ending COVID-19 restrictions, which we already kind of discussed forever, as you you noted in the story, (laughs) expanding school choice, 
making schools safer, ending revolving door bail policies, securing the state's border with Mexico and cracking down on fentanyl. Um, you know, it seems like, like you said, these are a lot of items that we've already been talking about. He and others in the legislature have already made clear that these are priorities for the most part. I mean, the the bit maybe the biggest one um, on the the docket cutting property taxes. He also seemed to kind of lay out um, the idea of you know how much money he wanted to be spent on that, and we've we've seen since that happened this morning his kind of proposed budget coming out that included spending fifteen billion dollars on reducing property taxes there. Um, how does it feel to you like the the big three are kind of on the same page close enough on this particular issue of property taxes like is that or are are you seeing the potential for kind of sticking points to arise as this as this issue kind of comes through yeah i think big picture that they, they will ultimately come together on property taxes but if you get into kind of the specific proposals they favor there are differences i mean you know the lieutenant governor dan patrick is much more interested in increasing the homestead exemption for example than the speaker is the speaker is more speaker dave Phelan is more interested in appraisal reform um you know i think quite frankly you know abbott is less interested in the details in this situation than he is in delivering on that campaign promise or just delivering on just the, the ambition of having the largest property tax cut. And so, uh, you know, again, I do think there are some some key differences there, you know, but this is an issue where I, I think that they will ultimately, you know, come together. The, the oh, Another one we saw in there, expanding school choice, he talked specifically about education savings accounts, which was a, a, a little bit more detail and kind of what he would like to specifically see here. It's also an issue that people are making a lot of hay about him doing this in particular, you know, making it an emergency item, talking about it so forcefully this session compared to last sessions. But it is also true that he has been on the steps of the Texas Capitol for, um, you know, multiple sessions kind of at school choice rallies. He has never really been, I would say, an outspoken opponent of this. And I guess what I want here is someone to explain to me how this year is different, right? I mean, we continue to see this be something that Dan Patrick pushes. We continue to see something maybe to varying levels of degree, uh, Greg Abbott coming out on this, but that has not been the holdup in the past. The holdup has been in the house. And I, I guess I still look at this fairly skeptically seeing like, you know, how are we going to get to a position where there are enough kind of House votes for this, for this to be an issue that actually makes it through its way through the legislative session? Well, you're right to still look at it skeptically from just the hard, the cold, hard math of the, the legislature from that perspective. I think politically what has changed in the past few years and this is at least what probably supporters would say, so take this with a grain of salt, but I think politically what they would say has changed is that this issue of school choice has now become enmeshed in this broader debate over curriculum, over COVID mandates, and so it's no longer viewed as in such isolation as it may have been three years ago as an issue. Um, I mean, I think this is why Abbott decided to embrace it in his reelection campaign is because you can't talk about um, 
you know, what's happened in classrooms over the past two or three years uh, without reaching the natural conclusion that parents need more options for where to send their kids to school. And so I think at least supporters would say that's what's changed politically is now this, you know, this issue just becomes so enmeshed in this broader debate over parental rights, parental freedom, what, you know, whatever they want to call it. Um, and that's been, you know, heightened by the COVID pandemic and all these, you know, very polarizing debates over uh, curricula and, and books and libraries, et cetera. Yeah, and this the cynical view too is that like the maybe the the there's a critical mass of of support for um you know school vouchers or school choice or whatever you want to call it on the on the right uh, because you're right uh, Matthew in that like uh, Abbott has never been an outright opponent of this he has shown up at those school choice rallies with the yellow scarfs um, he's been there but there was also that year 2019 where nobody showed up like everybody was like we're not going to show up to this thing like the time just wasn't right for them yep. um but you're right i mean like the school choice really has always been a uh drum that lieutenant governor dan patrick has been beating and he's always tried to push the house and push governor abbott to also join him in that crusade um, Abbott seems to be comfortable. He seems to have designed a um, specific uh, vehicle for that to happen through the educational savings account. Um, and now it'll be interesting to see what the House does. The House, I think, has grown more conservative. Um, and so there's more hope, I think, for school choice, school voucher advocates. Um, but there's still sort of that hurdle that they have to overcome of those rural, rural Republicans who, you know, uh, public schools are the number one employees in the districts. And there are some rural districts where there are no private school options. Um, there are no other options for them. So I think they'll have to overcome that hurdle. Uh, but, you know, we've got three months to do that. So I think um, they'll come up with something. And to be, to be sure, the House remains the major obstacle here. But I should note, especially when you compare to 2017, you know, Dave Phelan, I think, is a different speaker than Joe Strauss uh, was in terms of letting legislation get a vote on the floor that has the support of a majority of the body. You know, Strauss was someone who I think was more heavy handed in applying his personal preferences to whether something should get a vote, even if it did have appeared to have, you know, majority support on the floor. I think feeling while we haven't necessarily heard, you know, a strong personal opinion from him on on vouchers, if he sees that you know there is majority support for a proposal he will he will let it get a vote on the floor at least his willingness to do that i think is is higher than the willingness to do that that joe strauss may have had in, in 2017 but regardless that's maybe getting a few steps ahead of where we're at you know school choice supporters have to build the majority support in the house before we can even have a discussion about you know whether it's going to get a floor vote that kind yeah, of yeah i think you're, i think you're so right patrick but but you know uh, the speaker had thrown a little bit of cold water on it at the trip festival in his interview with evan i think saying saying like i don't know if the votes are there or something now he's sort of come back around to it saying um you know i, I think in an interview last night he said you know it's not dead um and he said we're going to talk about it see what see, see where we can get but he's also said the other thing which is important which is like you know, rural districts are different. He mentioned in another interview that his district includes a rural area. So he's kind of sending the signals like, I'm open to it. It's just got to be the right, it's got to be the right mix. Is there anything we should make of the fact, Patrick, that um, some of these like anti-woke critical race theory, there, there wasn't an emergency item on that aspect of schools and education? Well, I think that the education emergency item 
which Abbott called education freedom is mm. pretty, you know, the way he cast it to me is pretty wide reaching and that it would include things like that. But what you just said does remind me that one thing we didn't hear at all from Abbott in this speech was about higher ed. It was almost, ex it was exclusively focused when it came to education on K through 12. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how he accommodates or doesn't accommodate the Lieutenant governor's very clear appetite to go after, to crack down on higher ed this session. Um, the lieutenant governor wants to eliminate tenure. He wants to extend the critical race theory ban to the college years. Um, there's another proposal he has out there. Uh, oh, he has like, you know, he wants to codify an anti-DEI uh, policy for higher ed, um, you know, which it, it's been amusing to see and, and somewhat ironic to see Abbott capture these national headlines uh, for, for the story we we broke to our credit about his chief of staff sending that anti-DEI letter to university leaders. But in reality, when it comes to the legislative space, Dan Patrick is is much more gung-ho about targeting higher ed this session in this, in this, in this context. And so um, we didn't hear that from Abbott last night at all. And it'll be interesting to see how he squares that with Dan Patrick's priorities going after higher ed this session. All right, James, I want to ask you quickly about the securing the state's border with Mexico and cracking down on fentanyl items there. Um, obviously, a lot of action on that over the years um, and a lot of money spent by Governor Abbott over the last two years. Looking like a more of a signal to continue that than necessarily any new policies proposed. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, he talked about how both both chambers have, uh, you know, put four point six billion dollars towards um, immigration and border security. Um, he's I think he talked about a couple of like stiffening penalties for like human trafficking um, and stuff like that. But, you know, at that point, when well, you've already caught them, right, it's a, it's a sentencing thing. So it's like at that point, you know, they're going to get in trouble. You, you, you get them in more trouble. But at that point, they're already caught. So, um, yeah, I definitely expect that to continue to be a focus. That's been their indication uh, for the longest time. I don't think that ever um, they ever strayed from that. Um, uh, but we'll see if they can stay within budget this time. Um, and it looks like they're trying to by like reducing the manpower uh, in the National Guard, using more technology like drones and contracting out some of the stuff they need to do to build out the border barrier. So, yeah, more on that. All right. Well, you know, we are starting to get into the action period of the legislative session. You know, uh, committee assignments are are made. We're we're getting closer to the bill filing deadline, so we will continue to keep an eye on all these things. Thank you, James, and thank you, Patrick, for joining us this week, and thank you to our sponsors: UT Arlington, Water Grows, Children at Risk, and the Texas Conference for Women. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?